0: and get started. Welcome to uh, Q&A week two. I know we're missing about uh, 40 people because they're over in the JBI meeting. So if you're supposed to be in the JBI meeting, we won't judge you. Go ahead and we prefer you to be over there actually. So that's over here in room 119 if you're thinking about doing JBI or even just getting some information on it. So can you turn that down a little? I'm very loud by nature. All right, so uh, that being said, let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. All right, Heavenly Father, I do just pray for uh, just the things that we're going to be talking about tonight, knowing that um, there's a lot of deep stuff. The, the questions that were asked um, could just be taken at surface level, or we could go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and Lord, that's because your word is so incredible. It's living so Deep. And so, Father, I pray that you would just use me tonight, just the things that get me excited about your word, the things that you've shown me and helped me to understand. I pray that uh, you would allow me um, to be able to tell them that uh, your word would go forth tonight. We would all experience the depth of your word. We'd fall more in love with you and more in awe of you and the book that you left us, understanding why you say it's forever settled in, in heaven, understanding why this book will be in eternity because of some of the depth we're going to be talking about here tonight. So, Lord, we do love you and thank you in all these things we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, I do have a question before we get started. Uh, By a show of hands, who is in my uh, church history Sunday school class? (laughs) Well, repetition is the key to learning, right? So, one of the questions that was asked uh, right off the bat was from church history and how are the church history dates figured out in Revelation 2 and 3 and for us to be able to answer this I have to answer it as if none of you were in the class and the class isn't even going on so for those of you who are in the class it's going to be the first part of this it's going to be repetitious um, but it's good because maybe you'll pick up some things you haven't heard yet Uh, maybe you'll understand something you haven't uh, connected dots with yet Um, but either way we're going to answer the question like there was no church history class. So, on your study sheet, God breaks down the 2,000-year church age into seven churches. Go to Revelation chapter 1. And just like in the church history class on Sunday mornings, I've actually adapted to um, using the, the, re- the layout of the room to help explain uh, church history. And so we're going to do it again here tonight. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, says John, and John is a type of uh, John the Beloved, the Apostle John, he's a type of the church, the New Testament church. And it says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, it's Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Look at verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother, and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, and I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book. And send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. All right, so, what we're going to have here is, we're going to set up the room in a a couple boundaries, and we're going to answer three questions tonight with the first question. So, they're all going to lead into the next. So, We're going to say that this row of chairs that starts right here, this is going to be 0 BC AD. This is year 0, the birth of Christ. Then we're going to come here. This row of chairs is going to be 90 AD. And this is when John is in the island of Patmos, in the prison island. And he's right here in 90 AD. And it says, if you look on verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, the Lord's day is not the Sabbath, it's not Sunday. It's the day of the Lord. And so he's taken in the spirit all the way into the future to about right here. So this is going to be this row right here. It's going to be this aisle. This is going to be our seven-year tribulation period. And it says that John was taken here on the Lord's day. and And he's told to write about the seven churches which he sees. Now look at verse 19. It says, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So John is taken into the future, into the Lord's day that starts with the rapture and goes all the way into eternity future. He comes here and he's told to write the things which thou hast seen. So he's writing about the past that hasn't happened yet. He's writing about 2,000 year church age. So that's what these row, this, this row of chairs, that's what this is going to represent, 2,000 years. And it says, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, talking about the tribulation, uh, the, the rapture and the second coming, and the things which shall be hereafter. And so that's going to represent this. It's going to represent the millennium, the new heavens, the new earth, and then going on into eternity future. So that's the context of what we're talking about. So now go to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, and unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, if this is the church age, each of these, each of the churches is going to represent an age. So he talks about verse 1, unto the angel in the church of Ephesus. And then he says uh, in verse 8, unto the angel of the church of Smyrna. Now look at verse 12, unto the angel of the church of Pergamos. Verse 18, Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira. Chapter 3 and verse 1, unto the angel of the church of Sardis. Verse 7, unto the angel of the church of Philadelphia. And then he says in verse 14, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. This is our church age. This is where we're going to be talking about for the next, uh, for probably in the next half hour, spending our time here in the church age answering this question. So, with that being said, I, just paid, I tried to give you a visual in here of this right here. This is uh, the timeline, which hopefully you can see a little bit better over here. But this is the timeline. And so if you look, let's see if I can do this. There we go. 2,000 years of church history. So these seven churches that we see right here, that's this. As John's standing over here, he's looking back and writing the things which he has seen. Now, the question is, how do we know the church history dates figured out in Revelation 2 and 3? What they mean is when we teach through Ephesus, we say Ephesus on your study sheet, it's 90 to 200 AD, Smyrna is 200 to 325 AD, so on and so forth. Well, how do we get those dates? Well, on your study sheet, we can take the biblical truths, and apply them to historical events during those times. So first and foremost, this is how we can get this date, we can date this system. So the first thing that we would see would be Ephesus. And during this time, we have 90 AD, so remember, you have uh, the Apostle Paul and all the uh, other disciples, the apostles, during this time of Jesus Christ has died right about here, and they keep on going, and they're reproducing themselves. And they're reproducing themselves into reproducers. And so it's there, during this time, this, these uh, apostolic church fathers coming from 90 A.D. all the way up into 200 A.D. Well, how do we get those? Well, because during this time, you still have people historically that we can go back and look at that were saying that they still had these apostolic works going. That they had the lineage that they were being trained by the apostles themselves and the Apostle Paul, and that they were still able to do the apostolic works of tongues and, 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 and healing, um, the baptismal regeneration. I mean, we're going to talk. This is going to be something that goes on through. But that has to have bled into this church in Ephesus. And so that's why some people put the start of Ephesus at 60 AD. Others put it at 33 AD. Either way, doesn't matter. We just know it starts with the, the first church, and there's something that's called the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, Nicolaitan, it's called Nico. It's, it's the conqueror of the laity. It's what happened was people, they elevated themselves above the laity, everybody else, and they said, listen, let us tell you what the Bible's trying to say. Let us tell you what God tells you in this book. Because in this time, in, in the church of Ephesus, You had in Alexandria, Egypt, this school, these different schools of philosophy. So you had the the scientism and paganism and Judaism and Christianity and philosophy and this eclectic mass of all these minds getting together, kind of like in Acts 17, but in a school with Mars Hill. It was in a school format. And so they're sitting there and they're talking and they're debating, teaching each other. And then it becomes Christianized. So during this time, back in Alexandria, Egypt, you have this Christianization of this philosophical school, and now it becomes the Christian school in Alexandria, Egypt. Something that a lot of your uh, uh, different denominations today, they'll go all the way back to here because what came out of this school of thought in Alexandria, Egypt was Adamantus origin, and you had all these other people to where they start doing this method of Bible study called allegorical, To where they say, listen, though the Bible says that, it doesn't mean that. It actually means this. We'll tell you what the Bible means. During this time, they had higher learning. They had textual criticism. And they were telling the common person that they couldn't understand what God was saying. So this was happening during this time. So Ephesus is kind of easy. It's the first church. How do we know the dates? Because we know it would come from the apostles. But how do we know it ends around 200 A.D.? Well, there's always a transition in and a transition out. And so before 200 A.D., you have Adam origin coming around, but really taking root in his works and everything he's writing starts coming after. And we get into the next uh, uh, church age, which is Smyrna. So our second church age in Smyrna, he says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. So something that was happening back here, starting here in um, Ephesus, is now blowing up in Smyrna. They're now saying, listen, God is done with the Jew, the church has replaced Israel, the believer has replaced the Jew, and because of that, now we have all the apostolic sign gifts, we have baptismal regeneration, and we can lose our salvation, and so this takes off during this time. And you can go back to the works of the writers during this time. They're called the, uh, the anti-Nicene church fathers. You can go through and you can read it. This is what's happening. And God calls them out. So we take something historical and we apply it or we take something biblical and we see where does this even fit in history? And undoubtedly, it fits right around this time in Smyrna. Plus, he also tells the church in Smyrna, you shall have tribulation 10 days going to the Roman persecutions. It doesn't kind of, you know, date itself better than that. So that can't be Ephesus. The things that were happening in Smyrna couldn't be Ephesus yet. And the things that were happening in, uh, in Smyrna, they can't be the next church age. That's Pergamos. Now, 325, that's a pretty distinctive date. What happened, church history students, on 325 AD? The Council of what? Nicaea. So you have Constantine. He wants to be the sole emperor of, of Rome, pagan Rome at the time. And so uh, he's going to the Battle of Milvian Bridge. He sees uh, a, a P and X the, uh, in the sky, the, uh, supposedly the, the cross uh, with the names of, uh, the letters of the first names of Christ uh, uh, in Greek, whatever. And then he hears... That by the sign thou shalt conquer has a vision of Jesus Christ that says he's gonna win the battle wins the battle and then after he wins this battle back here in in Smyrna after he wins the battle he becomes Christian and he starts Christianizing pagan Rome Christianizing pagan Rome from an experience that he had with the visitation of supposedly an angel And so about 325 A.D., you have the Council of Nicaea. He gets over 300 bishops, gets them together and starts uh, uh, debating, and they have this debate on um, theology and what the Bible says, and they're they're debating doctrine, and supposedly they get together because they're debating the the deity of Jesus Christ. You have a guy named Arian who's from Alexandria, Egypt, who's saying that Jesus was only a half-God. And so they stand up, they're debating this issue, and so you have your first council that happens here in 325 in Pergamos. And so this council takes a step up and says, listen, the masses don't know what the Bible says. We're going to let them know. We'll teach them what the Bible says because they can't understand it for themselves. Mind you, taking what what was going on in the church age of Smyrna with this allegorical method, they're bringing this in. And so here in the church of Pergamos, you have four councils, four Roman councils, Roman Catholic councils that is going to dictate the people what the Bible says. And then there's four in the next church age. And by the time you get to Sardis, there's nine church councils that are determining what the Bible says so that the common man can understand it. So from Pergamos, the very name of it means much marriage to where Constantine took a uh, pagan Rome and he married it to Christianity. That couldn't have happened in Smyrna because there was no church in this sense. We're gonna start seeing the form of the Roman Catholic Church and it wasn't there yet. It was in a different mystery form at that point in time. So it couldn't have been before the Council of Nicaea. And then Constantine goes around and he starts converting the world to Christianity by offering them land and money And if they just get baptized, then they're Christians. And as he does that, he marries Christianity to paganism through holidays also. Holidays we still celebrate. Christmas, Easter, birthdays, these all come from this time period. And now you also have during the Pergamos time period something called the doctrine of Balaam. Now, I don't know if you guys know that story of Balaam, but in the Old Testament, the king of the Moabites, Balak, he said, all right, Balaam, this Jewish prophet, he says, I need you to curse Israel for me. Balaam says, well, I can't, I've tried, God won't let me, but here's how you can get them to curse themselves. Marry them. Have your daughters and your sons marry their children, and God will curse them because they're cursing themselves. So instead of Satan trying to attack the church from the outside, he attacks them from the inside. And so that's the doctrine of Balaam. And at this point in time in Pergamos, Leading up to 500 A.D., the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, it was deeds back here, because you, in Ephesus, you have this, this mindset of this allegorical method of Bible study and translation. And then you get all the way to here to Pergamos, and now these Roman councils are taking the Bible away from the common man, saying, you don't know Latin, you don't know Greek, you don't know Hebrew. Let us tell you what the Bible doctrines are. And it's during this time that you have the doctrine of the Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and this false religious system coming into the church. It could not have happened pre-Nicaea. So therefore, we have 325 to, now how do we get 500? Well, then we go to the next church period, Thyatira, where it becomes the doctrine of Jezebel. The doctrine of Jezebel, so the Roman Catholic Church continues to adopt this Old Testament religious system And so if you were to study in Judges 17 and 18, you would see that there was this uh, man named Micah and he wanted his own religion. So he hires a Levite priest that's younger than him, who wears a black robe and he gets idols and images and is paid to serve and worship them. And this black robe priest who's younger than Micah is called Father. And this doesn't start until we start getting into 500 to 1,000 A.D. And we start seeing these idols and these images continue to be worshipped through this time period alone. It couldn't have been back here in Pergamos. There is an evolving that's happening during this time period that didn't apply. And so he goes on to say, and then 1 Kings 16 to 21, talking about Jezebel and Ahab and that prophetic picture of The political and the religious system of Rome going for Jerusalem, it doesn't start until here, during this time. And so God says, I will kill her children with death. The start of the bubonic plague, 541 AD, the Justinian plague, it started along the trade routes of the Roman uh, Empire. And God is starting to judge them because this spread of the doctrine of Jezebel is getting into the legit church. And we have this buildup of a false church that's happening leading up to 1000 AD. Now watch, next you have Sardis. We come to here, so we've worked our way up to Sardis. And in Sardis, nine church councils, nine. The Bible is banned. Sardis starts in 1000 AD at the heart or what's called the midnight of the dark ages. And so it says, thou hast a few names in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. Listen, there is a remnant of the true church during this time in Sardis, our history, by the way. We are, as Baptists, we are not Protestants. We never protested against the Catholic church from within. We are Anabaptists, which come from Albigenses and Chaldeneses and Waldenses and Cathars, we have a history, and during this time in Sardis, we had people like Peter Waldo and, the, and, and uh, all the Albigenses and all these street preachers that were standing up on the corners, and they were preaching penalties and judgment against Rome. They weren't praying for reform. They were praying judgment, repent, or you're going to be judged. There's a difference between reformation and repentance. And so they were preaching against Rome. And so during this time, you have Sardis, which means red ones, it was the biggest time of, of Christian persecution the world had seen, yet you have the Crusades when you have Roman Catholicism versus Islam. They're going at it trying to battle for the, for the Holy Land, for the Jewish Holy Land. You have the Spanish Inquisitions to where people were literally being tortured for their faith, were either not repenting or not converting. And so look at Martyr's Mirror. Look at Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read it this time. I mean, no other period in church history should be called Red Ones except for Sardis. Over 50 million martyrs during this time, the midnight of the Dark Ages because of the Spanish Inquisitions. And then you say, well, how could we ever come out of that? Well, next comes Philadelphia, that only church, in a sense, that has no rebuke. It's the church of the open door because the gospel goes around the world at this time. That can't apply To Sardis. That can only apply to the Church of Philadelphia. Well, how do you know it's 1500 AD? What happens around the time of 15 AD? 1500 AD. What is it? All right, so we have the printing of the Bible. We have the Reformation. We have preachers. We've got the, the gospel, missionaries. I mean, it's going out into the entire world. This church is known as the church with the key of David, with the printing press, and the King James Bible coming around. And it goes throughout the entire world. That's not Sardis. That can't be Smyrna. That can't be Ephesus or Thyatira. It's got to be from, because anything before that time period of around 1500, these historical events would not apply. The biblical events wouldn't apply. But it also talks about how God is going to punish the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not. We do still have to remember though the Reformation was a good thing, as Luther and, and Zwingli and Calvin, and we have all these people that are trying to reform the Catholic Church, and so they come out of the Catholic Church, they're still bringing an Augustinian doctrine. Constantine, way back here in Pergamos, he is, uh, he is the, uh, the foundation of the political system of the Roman Catholic Church. A little bit further on down the line, Augustine, he becomes the theological foundation for the Roman Catholic Church and he believes in what they were teaching with Adamantius' origin, this replacement or covenant theology that that the church has replaced the Jew and that carried on its way all the way up through the Reformation with Calvin, Luther, uh, Zwingli, all these other reformers that would come out during this time and what did they do? A lot of them came out and they absorbed into Anabaptist churches. So Reformed, our Calvinist Baptist churches, have been around for 400 plus years. So when you talk about Baptists, like, well, we're real Baptists. Well, for 400 years, we've kind of been split. There's been Calvinists or Reformed Baptists, and then there's been the Anabaptists or the General Baptists. And so, and we obviously would not be the Reformed Baptist. Uh, but God even calls out during this time those that still say they're Jews or not. They belong to the synagogue of Satan. So you have to be careful with that. And that leads up to about 1900 AD. Well, that's another strong point. So we understand how we get 15. How do we get 1900 AD? Well, what happens around 1900 AD is, and some people can trace it back to 1837 using biblical math, whatever. But you start getting Westcott, Hort. You start getting these different Bible versions that are coming out this allegorical method of Bible translation leading itself all the way up to the very end of the, uh, of the Philadelphian church age going into Laodicea. And during this time, you know what else we have? We have the, uh, uh, the Campbellites, the, the Church of Christ. We have Seventh-day Adventists. We have Jehovah's Witnesses. We have Mormons. And shortly after that, we have Charismatics coming onto the scene. You can't say that's a church without rebuke. You can't say that that's the church of the open door with the key of David because it's not. Laodicea is the church of the closed door. As you have five different groups preaching five different gospels, people don't know what they're doing. That's not the church of the open door. So therefore, right around 1900, there has to be some kind of transition. Has to be. And so it's the last church age before the rapture. It's lukewarm and full of rebuke. It's the church of the closed door. And Laodicea means the rights of the people. And do I even have to explain that in our church age now? And how it's all about civil rights, our rights. And then on your study sheet, I want you to see that. That blank you have, after that, it's rapture. It's the rapture. And you can go, if you're you're in Revelation, look at chapter 4 and verse 1. So John, a type of the church, he looks back. And he writes about the things which thou hast seen. And he comes up through 2,000 years of the church age. And he comes to right here, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. And he says, and after this, after what? After the church age leading up and ending with Laodicea, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which thou uh, must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one that sat on the throne. So immediately after Laodicea, we have the rapture of the church and he's before the throne of God. So that's how we can see the first part of um, of how we date the churches in church history. Now, let's look at some crazy stuff that will blow your mind. All right. So on your study sheet, first, uh, God breaks down time in scripture through hours, days, and millennia, times and seasons and watches. Now, at first I gave you all the notes and I was like, you guys can't have five pages. All right. So, but look this up for, your, for yourself. It's incredible. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 20, you would see this breakdown of hours. And it's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And so you take what God calls this 12-hour day and he starts it with the, uh, with the first coming of Christ and he ends it all the way over here with the second coming of Christ and everything in between is 12 hours. And so when you do the math, the first hour with the first coming, 12th hour with the second coming, we get the third hour being 500 A.D., the end of Pergamos. Then we get the sixth hour, 1,000 A.D., the ninth hour, 1500 A.D., the 11th hour, 1900 A.D., right about the time of Laodicean Church period. And do you know what happened on the 11th month of the 11th day in the 11th hour? Do you know what happened? The Balfour Declaration. Where they said, where where Lord Balfour, the, the Zionist movement said, hey, we want Israel back into the land. Happened right here, 1917 And then you have the 12th hour going into the second coming. It happens like that. Then you have days and millennia. I think most of us are more familiar with this one. But you have uh, 2 Peter 3.8 where it says the day of the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Now, the days of creation, literal 24-hour days. Day one, evening in the morning, the first day. Day two, evening in the morning, the second day. Day three, day four, day five, day six, all evening and morning. Day seven, a day of rest, guess what there wasn't? There was no evening and morning because there was no sin. And it was supposed to go on forever. But sin happened. Genesis 3 happened. And because of that, because of that sin, now we have this time system that God gives us when he talks about the end of time over here. He gives us this time system and says, oh yeah, yeah. The days of creation apply to, you can apply that to millennia. And so if the Old Testament, supposedly Garden of Eden, 4004 BC, however they get the four years, whatever, but you got 4,000 BC, and then that's the Old Testament, 4,000 years of history. Then you have the fifth day with the birth of Christ. You have 2,000 year church age, and then you have the seventh day or the 7,000 years, and that's the millennium. And so when you break that down, the millennium in the New Testament becomes the third day. And because of this, we can see God is showing us again this 2,000-year gap of time, this 2,000-year church age that he shows us multiple times in Scripture. Look at the next one. Uh, The times and the seasons. We're not even going to get into this, but I just wanted to show you and go, wow, God's pretty deep, and there's a lot of stuff that plays into this. But Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, to every purpose, uh, 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 what is it, to everything? Turn, turn, turn. There is a season. (laughs) Turn, turn, turn. And then verse 1, a time to be born. And then you go to the end of that, verse 8, and there's a time for peace. And in between is 28 days of the Jewish calendar. And you're like, wait, 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 say this again. No, because I don't, I don't fully understand. I know the breakdown, but it's incredible. God shows us these, these things over and over and over again in Scripture. Luke chapter 12, he says, and he said uh, also to the people, when ye see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you say, oh, there cometh a shower, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, oh, there will be heat, and then it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? God puts these times and these seasons, these days, all these things in Scripture for us to know. I know that because go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. God wants us to understand in the church age and to know these things in these times. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We could read the whole chapter, but verse 1, it says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. Why? Because you know them. I've already been talking about them. You should know them like the back of your hand. I've been warning you of what's going to happen in the last days. You already should know them. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction come upon them as travail upon a woman with child. Oh yeah, God also puts that as a picture in scripture. Talking about when a woman is in travail, you know the times and the seasons and you, know, you can see the events that are happening leading up to the birth. You might not know the exact day or hour, but you know about the same time. He says, it's like that with the coming of the son of man. And it's also like that with the birth of Israel or the rebirth of Israel. It's just like the travail of a woman. You might, know the, you might not know the exact time or day, but you know the season. Look, if you can look at the sky and see that rain is coming, you should be able to take my word, read it, and then look at the events and that's going on before you and go, oh yeah, that's right here. That's what he's saying. So, oh, and we won't even get into how the four seasons correlate with the Jewish feasts and the rapture and the second coming. I mean, God put it all. He laid it all out in scripture. You just got to look. You just got to study to show yourself approved for these things. And then the last one on there, the watches. God puts and talks about these watches in scripture. Go to Mark chapter 13, which is funny because it's going to go right into our question number two. So Mark chapter 13. Look at verse 32. It says, but of that day, And that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. So the day and the hour, we don't know. But the times of the seasons, we better know. We're accountable to know that. Verse uh, 33, Take ye heed, watch, and pray, for you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, so Jesus Christ and his ascension, who left his house, and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Verse 35 Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning. So we have four watches in the night, and then verse 36 Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. And so God uses even watches in Scripture with this breakdown of Jewish time. And if you take the four watches and you apply it to the church age, again, we have four pretty distinct uh, 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 time periods that apply to our church ages that we're talking about. So that's kind of taken a step back. What we did is we took the seven letters and we kind of zoomed in more historically, but God gives us these things. And then in Matthew 14, he even says that Christ is coming in that fourth watch of the night, the son of righteousness. Is going to come during that time. Watch therefore, and know. So on your study sheet, when we combine the timelines, the biblical truths, and the historical events, we can get approximate dates. Because remember, they transition in, they transition in, and transition out. They're not hard dates for the most part. But to each of these seven church periods, making up the two thousand year church age. And as you can see, God has laid out many different ways for us to be able to trace and identify the most important event on his calendar, and that is the day of the Lord. And God does all of that for us in scripture. Kind of cool. So what's even crazier is it goes much deeper. Things that I don't even want to talk about because they're not mine. I don't own it. Going into Matthew chapter 13 and talking about the seven parables the Jewish parables, that God laid out these seven parables in Matthew chapter 13 so that the Jews could also trace this church history and then gives them five more parables to talk about how they're supposed to survive the tribulation period. And why am I not talking about? Because I don't fully get it. And I don't want to just sit up there and read what some other people say. I don't want to regurgitate it, but it's very interesting. And hopefully someday it'll make more sense. But I feel like I already got enough to help me That's just added. When you're in JBI and you go through systematic theology, you'll talk more about those things. But there's all these different systems that God has put in Scripture, and it's incredible. So now on your study sheet, the second question, Matthew 24, 34, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Can you explain this verse? I want to know all the things. Expository teaching on it. All right, let's do it. So, um, you are already in Mark, chapter 13. Look at verse 28. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender, and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is near. So ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh even at the doors. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. So we've already somewhat set the context of this verse in Mark talking about the fourth watch of the night and the four watches in history. But on your study sheet, the chapter context of Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, these are correlating passages. It's the Olivet Discourse. But the chapter context on your study sheet, it's the Jewish tribulation period. So go to, uh, now go to Matthew chapter 23. I don't know about you I love this stuff I love seeing prophecy and I love how God makes his books so much deeper and deeper and deeper and I love not understanding things for a long time and then when it clicks and you're like God you're so awesome thank you Matthew chapter 23 look at verse 37 he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is Jesus talking, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not, would, past tense for will. God has a will, so does man. Man's free will resisted the will of God. His will is resistible. And he says, I would have gathered you, but ye would not. Because of that, verse 38, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. There it is, that word, the house again. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That already happened. Oh, yeah, it's going to happen again right around here, right around the second coming. It's going to happen again. And so we see the context of Matthew 24. Jesus is like, what do I do? I've been fully rejected. And he's about to make his way to the cross. Chapter 24 and verse 1. Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, Tell us, When shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So here we have Jesus Christ, Jewish, at the Jewish temple in Jewish Jerusalem, talking to the Jewish disciples about something that's going to happen during the time of Israel's trouble or Jacob's trouble. Verse 4. He tells them what they're supposed to look for and what he's telling them it's happening Right around this period here, in this tribulation period. Verse 4 And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So, What people in this Protestant sect, in the the Roman Catholic uh, Church, what they say is that this is either, it's allegorical, it doesn't mean what it's saying it means, or it already happened back there. This already happened with Titus in, in 70 A.D., way back here in 70 A.D. when Titus came in and ransacked the temple. And yet none of these things were happened. Rome was the superpower. There were no wars and rumors of wars. There was no nation rising against nation. Nobody stood up to Rome. Rome defeated and they plumaged and they took over the known world. There wasn't these famines and 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 pestilences and perils of swords. None of these things happening back then. Jesus is talking about this future context. Verse uh, eight, all these things that are happening are just the beginning of sorrows. This is just the start of how bad it's gonna get, Israel. Verse nine, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. The greater the sin, the less the love. And it's happening today. Verse 13, but He that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. That is not to us, church. We hear Revelation 4.1, we were raptured up to the throne. Those that endure till the end, the end of what? Their life? No, the end of this time of tribulation when Christ comes back. You have to endure to the end of that. It's not us. Here's how we know. Let's keep going. Look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Ladies and gentlemen, do we preach the gospel of the kingdom? No. The gospel of the kingdom. This is the millennial kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No, no, no. You know what we preach right now? The gospel of the grace of God. It's the church age salvation by grace through faith. Things will be different in the tribulation period. And the 144,000 Jews, they're going to come and they're going to preach the gospel of the coming kingdom. It's not yet. We preach the gospel of the grace of God because praise God by His grace, we don't have to be here for this seven-year tribulation period. Look at verse... 15, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him, re, let him understand. Now, the abomination of desolation. I'm sorry, but the person asked for an exposition. So we're just laying this out. The abomination of desolation. Three and a half years into the tribulation period. You're going to have the Antichrist. After he's suffered a massive head wound through his right eye and and an issue with his right arm, he's going to die and resurrect. And the Antichrist is going to become Satan incarnate. And he's going to stand in the temple in Jerusalem. Before that, it's peace and safety. Peace, peace. There is no peace. He's going through for the first three and a half years with his seat in Rome... Knowing the full well, he wants to move to Jerusalem. And so he does, and he comes to Jerusalem, and he sits in a restored temple, and he's going to resurrect, and the world is going to go, how did you do that? And he's going to say, oh, because I'm God. Bow down and worship me. I'm he, I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And so Islam, and, and Judaism, and Roman Catholicism, and Baptists, and anybody that's left behind, Hinduism, they're going to see this man with the answers who's resurrected from the dead, sounds a lot like Christ, Antichrist, and he's going to claim to be God. Well, what else do we do? I'm going to resurrect an image of myself, Revelation 13, and you guys are going to bow down and worship this image and take its mark and take its number. There's going to be a one-world government and a one-world religion, all these things that are going to be happening. Oh, yeah, kill the Jews. And in Revelation, multiple times it says that they're beheaded on the altar, and he spills their blood on the altar. That's the abomination of desolation. Look at verse 16. Then, when you see this happen, what was prophesied in Daniel? Let them which be in Judea, Israel, let them flee into the mountains. They're going to flee into the wilderness, just like they did when they were uh, taken out of Egypt. And they're going to flee in the Petra. They're going to flee into the wilderness. Let him which is on the housetop uh, not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. Uh, woe unto them that are with child and give suck in those days, in those days, during this time, because any of these things slow them down. And, and hopefully that they don't take their literal flight on the Sabbath day because they're not going to be able to fly in Israel as flights are grounded on the Sabbath. Verse 21, why? For then you have the beginning of sorrows that starts right around here with the seven-year tribulation, but after this abomination of desolation three and a half years in, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time no ever shall be. God even has to go, he goes on to say, he even cuts time short, or else there might not any, be any believers left of the, of the Jews, that are going to convert. There might even not be any left. So he cuts the day short. It's going to be so bad during this time until he comes back. Now go to verse 31. Well, verse 30. And then after these things shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven... And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of uh, heaven to the other. So he just describes this time during the tribulation period to the great tribulation to the second coming of Christ, verse 32, that's the context of now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender, and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. All right, so on your study sheet, that's your exposition. Your passage context is the restoration of the nation of Israel. Israel is your blank. Religious Israel is the fig tree that doesn't bear fruit. You can find that in Scripture. It's religious. Going back to even Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, what did Adam and Eve hide themselves behind with their own hands? Fig leaves. It's that tree that doesn't bear fruit. The wicked tree, that evil tree, because they're supposed to bear fruit, but they're not. In Matthew chapter 21, you guys can read it later. I put it on here. It's unbelieving Israel. Jesus even cursed it just a couple chapters before this. He's passing by, and he sees a fig tree with green leaves. Where's the fruit? It's not there. There should have been fruit from before, uh, the season before, and new fruit that was, should be coming onto the tree, and yet there's nothing, just leaves. The signs show that this is a fig tree, and yet there's no fruit. It's religious Israel. It's that picture. Again, in Mark 11, look those up later. But again, he saw that the, the tree had leaves, but it was no fruit and it was deceptive. Wait, wait, wait. You're, you're, you're telling me you're Israel, but you're, you're not. You're not living up to the faith. You, you know what's interesting? Let me ask you this uh, Islam, is that a nation or a religion? It's a religion. Is it also a nation? No. Hinduism, nation, or religion? Religion. Is it a nation? No. There's only one nation slash religion in all of history. Jews. It's a religion, and it's a nation. And it's going to be restored. A remnant, but it's going to be restored. Israel is this fig tree. Jesus cursed it. And then your next uh, point down... Actually, they cursed themselves because there was a fig tree that was planted in a vineyard in Israel, and the owner of it, God, sent the vine dresser because there was no fruit for three years. Man, these parables are beautiful. For three years trying to get fruit, and there was nothing. And God's like, fine, cut it down. You don't have to get rid of the root. It can regrow, but cut it down unless they bear fruit. So on your study sheet, the parable of the fig tree is prophetic of Israel as a new nation. This did not happen until, does anybody know when? 1948. So if this chair is Laodicea and Laodicea starts around 1900, you got about right here, you have the fig tree giving its leaves. You have the fig tree, that, this parable that we're talking about. So these things that it talks about in Matthew chapter 24, refer to the tribulation. The fact that it is near, even at the doors, is the second coming. And so when you see Israel restored, the end of the age is coming soon. Well, Israel was restored in 1948. So the end of the age is coming soon to a theater near you. So, that being said on your study sheet, the church will have already been raptured shortly before that, in the spring. That's what I love about Song of Solomon. My beloved spake, and he said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over. We didn't even talk about rain being a subject of time. The former and the latter rains and how God uses times of that. We didn't even get into that. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of the birds has come and the voice of the turtle or the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs and the vines and the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. The rapture in the spring before summer and that fruit happens before this happens and the coming of the son of man to follow. So on your study sheet, any unbelieving Jew born in 1948 will be in the generation that sees the second coming. Okay. So someone has to be really old. But we have to define what a generation is. So on your study sheet, Matthew 1, it says that a generation is every 42 years. In Psalm 90, it's every 70 years, I think even 80 In Genesis 15, there's 100 years, and you go all the way up to Noah, where it's 120 years. So you take these generations, and you apply them to 1948, and you say, okay, 120 years plus 1948, so you have 2068 minus seven for the rapture, but we have uh, 2068 for being the second coming. Oh, we got it. Well, we don't know what a generation is defined as. Plus when you go to chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 2, God says he actually can change the time and the seasons. God's very good at hiding time, 2,000 years even in a semicolon in scripture because God is long, long-suffering and he's merciful and he always wants to draw people to him all the way up until the very end. And so we don't know when, we know the, time, uh, the times and the seasons, but we don't know the day or the hour. We just know that according to Scripture, in 1948, when that fig tree showed that fruit, when it started to bud, that there's, that generation shall not pass without seeing the second coming. How long, we don't know. 120 years, maybe it's longer. Probably a lot shorter than that. That's the answer to your question. So what's the exact date of the second coming? We're just going to leave that blank. We also don't understand fully some of the things because of our Gregorian calendar with Pope Gregory. So we gotta be careful because the way that Jews record their time, especially on a 28-day system versus what we do. So we don't fully know, but we just know it's soon. Because if we can look at the face of the sky and we can tell that rain is coming, we can read our Bibles and then look at everything going on and know that we are in that 11th hour before Christ comes back to rapture us. So, number three, our final uh, question. It's who are the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4? All right. So, your context of Revelation chapter 4 and 5, it's the throne of God. Go to Revelation chapter 4. We'll just answer this briefly. You might be surprised at the answer. All right. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Remember, we're here again. We're right at Laodicea closes, Revelation 4, 1. And after this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one that sat on the throne. Look at verse 5. Or verse four, and round about the throne were four and 20 seats, and upon the seats I saw four and 20 elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their, head, uh, on their heads crowns of gold. Now go to verse nine. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and 20 elders fall down before him uh, and they sat on, that sat on the throne, and they worship him that liveth forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Chapter 5 and verse 5, still at the throne. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, so one of these elders is talking to him, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Look at verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts, and the four and twenty elders, they fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou uh, wast slain, and has redeemed us, now listen, and has redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And they go on again and they fall down and worship him. So this scene takes place here during the seven-year tribulation. So remember, the book of Revelation 2000 year church age that's revelation chapters 1 through 3 revelation 4 and 5 he's raptured up to the throne and this is what he sees but in revelation 6 all the way to 1910 it's all about the great tribulation this part here and it works for through uh, uh, through four different times then you got the second coming in revelation 19 and then you got 20 with the millennium 21 with the new heaven and the earth and 22 into the eternity future We just broke down (laughs) 2,000, 3,000 into eternity in one night. But during this time of seven-year tribulation, he's also up here at the throne. And this is what he sees. And there's 4 and 20 elders beholding this. And so on your study sheet, the 24 elders are around the throne and they're clothed in white raiment. Look that up. The righteousness of the saints. Crowns of gold are on their heads. And yet in the New Testament over and over, it talks about how we have the ability to earn crowns. And they fall down before God and they worship him, casting their crowns to him with that song of Revelation 4, 11. And so we also learn that uh, we're all gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ to know what rewards we're gonna get and what's, what's gonna pass through the fire and what's gonna burn, depending on not what we did, but how we did it, it says. And our heart attitude for that. It says that they have harps and golden vials full of odors with the uh, 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 prayers of the saints as your blank. And they sing a new song about being redeemed by the blood. Now, if this was going to be Jewish, I'm like, okay, well, it would have to be, is it the blood of the lamb? And the Old Testament that they trusted under is that when Jesus went down to Abraham's bosom and raised them up, I mean, is it the blood of Christ? That, so you're trying to work through these things. Who are these people? They represent Jews, they represent us as the church. And then it says that they're redeemed of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. That can't be Jewish, can it? I mean, to me, that sounds Gentile. It says that they're made kings and priests, just like we are, In the New Testament, actually go to Revelation chapter one and we'll close. Revelation chapter one, verse five. It says, if from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we've been made kings and priests to be able to reign on the earth. So who they are, no one knows. (laughs) That's your blank. No one knows who they could be. If you go to Revelation 21, it's interesting. It kind of sounds like they could be the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Or they could represent the church. Church is your blank. And tribulation saints. I tend to kind of go toward... The second part of that, because being redeemed by the blood, redeemed of every kindred tongue, people and nation, they're representatives of us. But it is different because 12 is that number of Israel and 24 is 12 divided by two. And so that applies to to us and the tribulation. I don't know. The answer is we don't know. I tend to go more toward representing the church and the tribulation saints, but you get to heaven and meet them and find out that both were wrong i don't know so we good we covered a lot i'm sweating i'm drenched it was a lot to cover but i hope it helped and sometimes it's not the first time you hear some of these things maybe it's the second or third or the fourth you need to hear these things over and over again but i'm telling you if you can understand the breakdown of the book of revelation You can understand what we were talking about with the tribulation and the great tribulation and the church age and all these things. When you get it, when it finally starts to click and you understand it, I'm telling you, then you're going to understand the day and age in which we live better. You're going to understand why we believe what we believe better. Why are we premillennial? Why do we believe in a rapture? Why do we believe in salvation by grace through faith? Why do we believe that uh, we can't lose our salvation? When you get this breakdown, comes together, and you know who you are as the church in Christ. All right, any questions? Good. All right, let's go ahead, close in prayer, then we'll, do the, um, we'll get through the prayer meeting. All right, Heavenly Father, I know this is a lot. There's a lot of deep things that we just talked about that can be very heavy um, that's hard to understand, especially if it's the first time that someone's hearing these things, but God, uh, it's true. And I don't even understand uh, uh, just... Uh, the tip of of the depth of all of this but it gets me excited because I have the rest of eternity to see how all this played out I have the rest of eternity to ask you questions (laughs) and to be able to teach others the same things Lord it excites me these things excite me and yes the more questions we get answered the more questions we need to ask but that's okay if we knew everything you wouldn't be God The fact that we know so little makes you a very great God. When you see the depth of your word and everything in it, wow, you are awesome. Father, I pray that we would take the things we learned tonight, and as we're going to learn through the Q&A, as there's a lot of doctrinal questions being asked, a lot of heavy, deeper things that are being asked, that it wouldn't become knowledge puffing up, that it would Only solidify our faith more so that we would be motivated, knowing the day and age in which we live, to go out and preach the gospel of the grace of God, to tell others about you and that you're coming soon and that there's a judgment for sin. And if they don't believe and understand these things, that they're going to be judged. And so, Father, I pray that that's the end result of all of this, all the studying and talking we're doing, is it would motivate us more. To go out and reach the world for you. We love you and thank you. And all these things we pray in your son, Jesus' name. Amen.